Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. My name is Connor, and today I am sitting down with Dr. Graciela Perez, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies here at JMU. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Perez. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Just introduce yourself and tell us about yourself. Thank you. Um, I am an Assistant Professor here at JMU. My name is Graciela Perez. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm an assistant professor of criminology where I just started. This is my second year now here at JMU. I moved from the Bay Area in California last summer, and that was a cross-country trip across uh, the whole United States, and not by choice, but Mm. we made it here to Harrisonburg, and it's been something to adapt to being from west coast now moving to to the east coast but right now it's beautiful in the fall here in Shenandoah Valley yeah how do you like the east coast compared to the west coast that's so that's so interesting you did the whole so did you drive the entire way yeah it wasn't by choice you know that it was at a time where we're still and even now with COVID-19 pandemic so there were a lot of issues with moving Mm. transporting so initially we were planning and by me we I mean my partner and I were planning to to fly out but um, it didn't work out that way so we ended up having to pack whatever we could into one car and travel cross-country and that was kind of nice um, because we got to see many areas of the United States we hadn't been to before But uh, to answer your question of what I think, I did my graduate program in Delaware. So there's not Uh, much of a great difference that I see in terms of Virginia and Delaware in in terms of its environment or the seasons. So I'm used to the winter. Um, It was just an adaptation to the position from going from graduate student to now full-time professor. So like, what did you study? What were your like research interests? So I did my uh, I did my undergraduate at UC Irvine in California. Okay, okay. And I did my graduate program, both I received my master's and then my PhD at the University of Delaware in criminology. And what was, what, what something that was unique to that program is that it was both faculty in sociology and criminology. So I benefited, even though I'm a criminologist, was trained as a sociologist. So that intersection of both disciplines is what really drove my research and what I do today. That's that's so interesting that they, they combine that like that there, because I feel like they do really go hand in hand. Yes, and many would argue that it's, it's there are completely different in terms of disciplines because they are mm-hmm. where criminology traditionally focuses on the individual and their criminality sociology as a discipline tends to try to understand the societal factors and indicators of why we have different injustices happening mm-hmm. so in, in terms of its traditionality it's different but combined together it could really make for something that's innovative but also critical to the traditional discipline of criminology so why why are you so passionate about criminal justice and criminology and what what motivates you like how did you get into this field so that that's a that's an interesting question because I, I I wasn't planning this is not something that I dreamed about becoming or something I thought about early on um, even getting my PhD 
was not in the cards for me. I grew up in a household. My parents are immigrants from Mexico. Uh, my father ha- uh, made it to the second grade. My mother didn't graduate high school. Mm. So even becoming and, and graduating from high school was a big deal in the family. And I have three other siblings. I was the first to do it. And so what happens next? And something my mom told me from a very young age was, you can work hard now in terms of schooling, which is going to be very challenging. You're going to have to make sacrifices or you will have to continue to work hard the rest of your life because you don't have that education. And that's something that resonated with me till this day, something that I think about because it's true seeing my parents work from a very young age, difficult, hard body labor. I saw myself as having to do something for them. Mm -hmm. I had to break this cycle and I had to do something. So I ended up applying to college. I applied to, I think, 11 universities. And I ended up accepting to go to UC Irvine as it was one of the the best financial packages for me at the time. And it was a great decision. I had the best years of my life so far at UC Irvine as an undergraduate. It was a great time. It was the first time I was away from home. So there was a lot of identity development and becoming adult and discovering who I am. Mm. So that it was great in that sense. And then after that, I became involved in several research labs because graduate programs was not something I had in mind. And through those multiple research centers that I was a part of, I was a graduate student that motivated me to apply to a graduate program. Because at that time, I didn't even know what you would do. At the time, I thought, I want to become a psychologist, and that's Mm. what I'm going to do. But one of the earliest experiences that I had that has to do with an injustice was living in Southern California. I grew up in very diverse communities. I grew up going to Tijuana, that's at the southern border of Mm. California and Mexico. So that was something that was natural to me. It was something that I grew up in. It never struck me as anything different or anything unique, but it was when I was in the fourth grade and we were on a trip, on a field trip, because as fourth and fifth graders, we had met the reading goals of the class. So we were going to a mission, San Juan Capistrano, and we were going on a train to, to the mission and my mom was chaperoning me. My dad had dropped us off at the train station. In that morning, early morning, and me, a fourth grader, Uh, noticed that there were some officers that showed up to the train station, but these officers didn't have the typical blue uniform. It was green. And one of the officers approached my mom and asked her if she had her papers. But at the time, I don't, I'm a fourth grader, I don't know what what they're referring to. Mm -hmm. So my mom goes ahead, pulls out her wallet and shows her papers, which was what to me looked like an ID card. So the officer moves on. Another officer approaches my dad and asks him the same question. My dad pulls out his driver's license. That was insufficient. The officer asks to see his papers again. My dad says, I don't carry it with me. I must have left it at home. It's something that's very valuable, so I don't want to lose it, so I don't keep it with me at all times. So the officer proceeds to interrogate my dad, and keep in mind, this is with all fourth and fifth graders around and me not knowing what's going on, except there's an officer talking to my dad. Mm. The officer that had asked my mom that question had moved on to another person, a cyclist, 
a, a white man on a bicycle looked like he was going on a trip and asks him, good morning, sir, how's your morning? How's your banana? He was eating a banana, but didn't ask him for papers. So me as a fourth grader, I'm trying to understand what's going on around me and why my parents were singled out at this train station. My father ends up getting arrested and taken to custody by immigration officers. So the whole field trip, I'm sobbing, I'm crying, I'm not gonna see my father again, what's yeah. going on? My mom is trying to uh, trying to comfort me, saying everything's gonna be fine. So at the end, um, one of the teachers was in connection with the border patrol officers because I believe her husband is a border patrol officer. And uh, towards the end of the field trip told me that my dad would be there uh, for pickup. And he was. And so flash forward after that, my dad was there waiting for me. He told me about what happened during that interrogation. And because he didn't have what they refer to as papers, which I know was his green card at the time, even though he, he's now a citizen. So congrats to him. He, he recently became a citizen a few years ago. But because he didn't have that green card, he was interrogated for many hours, racial slurs, to the point of questioning his identity, his address, his employment, trying to see if he was the person he was saying he was. Even though he had his driver's license, he had called my sister to get him his a green card number. So at that moment, that experience carried on with me for years to come and mm -hmm. trying to understand what happened there, why did it happen? And is there anything that I could explain, especially as a fourth grader? And so without knowing, that experience really shaped me into the scholar that I am today to try to understand injustices that happen to those belonging to marginalized communities. And so thinking that I wanted to be a psychologist in undergrad, I realized that that might be not the best place where I saw myself fit. And the more that I took classes in criminology and criminal justice and law, that's where I began to really discover my passion and that this made sense and that, mm. oh, that explains that. And that's where I ended up pursuing a, a graduate program and ended up in Delaware. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's such an impactful story, and that's something that I feel like a lot of people that are not from the area that you're from like wouldn't even think of like that ha that would happen to or don't look like you or don't you know what I'm saying like mm -hmm. that sort of thing just boggles my mind that that happened to you at such a young age it must have been so confusing I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to take your experience and use it and teach others and teach others you know why these things happen and what what we can do about these injustices yeah I I think that's really what's shaping and I'm privileged in a way that other individuals are not so lucky to have have parents who are documented and if mm. that were to happen for someone that was singled out where their parents are undocumented that opens up a situation of deportation mm -hmm. I was lucky in that situation that I was able to see my parents again but others can say the same and so even with those nuances there it, it really drove me to understand 
what was happening to me mm-hmm. because I couldn't have been the only person that this was happening to. Right. How do you apply your experiences to your research focuses and how do you apply these to the classroom if you apply them or if you have like a different take on how um, how you teach? So these, this experience shapes my pedagogy, but it's not something that I introduce into the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because in the classroom, it's based on empirical evidence, empirical studies, even though we all have our different beliefs and our different opinions, what I bring into the classroom is based on empirical evidence. The approach that I do take, however, is understanding that we all have different learning capabilities. I try to implement methodologies that are going to be of interest to all. Mm. Um, So some of the techniques is for my more visual learners being in graphics or giving opportunities to work in discussion groups where they can draw out and practice their artistic skills. Other individuals who may not be so vocal or may be a little bit more shy to speak in the larger classroom settings, giving them an opportunity to write their answers instead of having to participate vocally. For other people who are okay and comfortable with speaking out in the large classroom settings, having an opportunity to have discussions where they can freely express um, their thoughts, again, being backed up, those arguments with the material that we've read in class, with the lectures that we've been going over. And in terms of my research, it's a huge separation from academia, the, the white ivory tower, and the communities that actually impact. So one of the things that I try to do is relay the information that I'm extracting, because that's what researchers do. We extract information through surveys, through interviews from communities, and use that information for publications. But how does it ever reach the communities it's actually impacting? Mm -hmm. So I try to base my research and understanding that dynamic by offering volunteering and being with the community that I am hoping to work with. Um, so one of one of the things that I've here in Harrisonburg since I've arrived, I've slowly began to make connections with different communities by going to different events, introducing myself and who I am, to start to build the report with important leaders in the community that mm-hmm. I hope to work with in the future. In California, I used to be part of different volunteer groups. There was one in the Bay Area where we would volunteer to help recently arrived refugees with their asylum cases or legal cases and even in in translating different documents or assisting the attorneys with their, their clients, trying to do any sort of work that we could provide to make their jobs easier, but also comfort the individuals who are in a completely new place, have to, besides just just existing and living, have to now also go through this legal barrier to remain in the United States. Right. Another of the programs is Border Angels, and through that program, again, on a volunteer basis, was bringing basic needs to the desert where a lot of individuals face challenges traveling through the desert. It's a very rigorous trail. It's uh, dangerous, it's risky. And even though there's not a lot of people that take that route, there are some. So being able to provide basic needs such as water, blankets during the cold, 
winters where it drops, the temperature drops to freezing sometimes degrees Mm -hmm. in hopes that someone's going to find them and be able to utilize them. And by, you know, eating canned tuna, drinking water when they've run out of their resources. So those are some of the ways that I try to bridge both my experiences to the research that I do. Mm. And in the classroom by bringing those, again, diverse abilities, capabilities to try to diversify the classroom, but also make it interesting to everyone in whatever capacity that I can. So tell me about your um, doctoral dissertation. What did you write about and research? And is there anything you found that surprised you or that you're still that you still carry with you? The dissertation wasn't too long ago, so um, it wasn't originally as I had planned to do. Again, keep in mind that I'm doing my dissertation during a global pandemic Mm. where we don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening, but yet the expectations of graduate students are the same Mm -hmm. as a regular timeline. And that was a harsh reality because I couldn't function in a regular timeline living at the start of a global pandemic. And one of the issues with the dissertation was originally I had planned to conduct and collect my own participants, recruit my own participants for the study that I had envisioned. That didn't end up happening because, of course, we need to quarantine, we need to remain isolated. Mm-hmm. So that contact with having with individuals, with people and recruiting them and, and, and speaking to them face to face was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That was that was the reality of it. So at the time I was working on a research project with Dr. Chiara Sabina, who's now at Rutgers. And in that project, we were using data from Dr. Carlos Cuevas and Amy Farrell from Northeastern University to look into bias victimization of Latinx in the United States. Bias victimization is very vast, but most official reports tend to look at bias victimization in terms of hate crimes. For example, the FBI's Uniform Crime Report takes into account hate crimes, so this is going to be bias victimization in the form of physical violence. But what we know is that there's different forms of bias victimizations that exist outside of physical violence, such as harassment, threats, uh, stalking, many other different forms. So through this, we were looking at the bias victimization in all its accounts and how how, um, Latinx had experienced it. I was able to use that data to conduct my own dissertation. And I was looking into the bias victimization of Latinx across three metropolitan cities, San Diego, Houston, and Boston. Hmm. And I was interested in the social cultural factors that influence or have an impact on their bias victimization. Those social cultural factors I was most interested was immigrant status. So whether someone is an immigrant or not, do we see more of a risk in either group? I was interested in other social cultural factors such as Anglo orientation. So how much are you aligned to the Anglo culture? And this was assessed through various questions such as how do you speak English? Do you hang out with Anglo people? Do you have Anglo friends? Do you watch movies in English? Do you read multiple questions to assess one's Anglo orientation? And then to that, there was also Latinx orientation, which did the opposite of, of looking into one's 
ethnic roots, looking at do you speak Spanish, how many Latinx friends or practices do you still do? And so looking at those three main factors, I was interested among bias victimization, looking at police discrimination. So now coming full circle to my earlier experience as a child, to now doing my dissertation, looking at police discrimination. And even though Border Patrol and law enforcement are separate departments, many of their practices are similar. Mm-hmm. In fact, especially looking in today's where we have intertwined criminal law with immigration law, mm-hmm. it's unfolded to something scholars have termed crimigration. So I was interested in looking at that aspect of, of police discrimination among Latinx participants. And what was found is that there wasn't any significant difference of police discrimination among those that were immigrants or were not immigrants. And at first it seemed a little bit surprising because I would think that immigrants might have a higher reporting of police discrimination than non-immigrants, so those Latinx that were born in the United States. But after careful consideration and and going back to the literature, it made sense. Because once uh, immigration status, it's not something that can be visually seen. Hmm. You cannot tell whether someone's an immigrant or not based on the way that they look, simply because we're not carrying around our citizenship on our chest. Mm. We don't have our immigrant status on our forehead. So it's something that if you appear to be immigrant, everyone, so brown, black, any person of color, assume even accents will be assumed to be immigrants. So there wasn't any differentiation across immigrant status. Where we did see a difference in police discrimination is that those that had Anglo, a higher Anglo orientation, so accustomed to U.S. culture, were more likely to report police discrimination than those with a higher Latino orientation. And it begged the question of politicians, people, community, United States, pushes so much of having to learn the English language, adapting to the culture. But yet what we see is the people that do do that face greater bias victimization than those who practice more of their ethnic roots and culture and traditions. And so that was something that was interesting because there was there's there's so much of a drive that we need to adapt, that we need to change, that we need to become accustomed moving forward with that is almost like a rite of passage to becoming American, Mm. that you're going to face bias victimization in doing so. Whereas those that had a higher Latino orientation were less likely to experience bias victimization. And the literature suggests that a part of this is because of the community they've built, that among your own ethnic enclave, you tend to move to places where you're going to be welcome, where you're going to be embraced. Mm-hmm. So if anything of, for instance, the presence of law enforcement or the presence of border patrol, ICE being in the community, it's something that one communicates to each other to avoid. Whereas those with Anglo orientation may have and be in spaces where they may be more prone or open to having individuals that they're interacting with make 
those threats, make those assaults, mm. make any form of bias victimization. It makes sense when you say it, but again, when you're doing the research, like I, if I were in your shoes, I would also think that the opposite would occur. Mm. But when you when you paint the picture like that, like oh, like that, it does make sense. And a lot of people, I feel like in general, like you stick with where places where you're going to be welcomed, places where if you're already within your own culture. Right. How did it, how did you grow from your research and what drew you to the JMU Justice Studies program after completing your dissertation? I was still completing my dissertation even upon my arrival here wow. at JMU. Yeah, so that was that was that was a lot. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend when I was on the job market, it was, again, and I'm going to keep making reference to pandemic because all of this is happening mm-hmm. not too long ago. And we have nationwide university hire freezes mm. across all disciplines. Universities are trying to budget how many people they can actually hire and trying to get confirmation. Job market for academia is something that's already very difficult. Mm-hmm. Now, put on top of that, COVID-19 with hire freezes much more challenging. So it was definitely a stressful time. The Justice Study Department here at JMU had many positive attributes that attracted me. But one of the things that was the first thing that attracted me was it's an interdisciplinary department. We have experts in the disciplines of geography, American studies, sociology, criminology, and all of that together with the main goal of justice, that across these disciplines, scholars from these fields could come together to offer their unique perspectives, their own expertise for the common goal of justice. And that's something, as a criminologist trained sociologist, something that I had seen the fruits to, something that I saw the benefits to having that multiple orientations to look at a research question. In addition to its its interdisciplinary nature, the colleagues are wonderful. It's a small department with approximately, there's I believe 12 of us at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a small department and it's very close knit. And that's something that's unique to other departments I've been in. And in this department, from the very beginning, from the job interview up to this date, everyone has been welcoming, has embraced my scholarship and celebrated me. They've been very supportive in my trajectories. And that is something that's unique to the department Mm. and something that I value and really appreciate and being in a place where I'm going to be welcomed where I'm going to be embraced, I'm going to be uplifted to continue to do the work that I enjoy. I'm so glad. Oh my gosh, that's awesome that like everyone's really supporting you. I feel like that's a, a common theme throughout departments at JMU. Um, most of them that I've encountered anyway, everyone really does support each other's scholarship and their work. Um, I think that's really unique about JMU compared to the other universities I've been to. Some people are just like, oh, I'm you know doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really glad that the Justice Studies Department has embraced you. So like, what classes do you teach here and like, what are they about? What do you hope that students take away from your classes? So I'm, I'm currently teaching three classes. I'm teaching a class on correction, which focuses on 
the United States Correctional Institutions. A part of that that I've integrated into, besides looking at juvenile detention centers, jails, prisons, under that larger umbrella of corrections, I also include immigration detention centers. Because even though some scholars may dispute that that is civil, I make the argument that with the with the interwoven criminal law and civil law to criminalize immigrants, it really is and functions as a prison. So I integrate immigration detention centers as part of that larger umbrella in looking at corrections. And we look at many aspects of corrections, looking at its history, looking at uh, re-entry, which is going to be a subject um, in the following weeks. We look at uh, forms of punishment in prison, the population in, in jails and prisons. So that encompasses all that has to do with corrections. It's very specific to prisons and jails much more specific than the other course I teach, which is, is Introduction to Criminal Justice. And that is a very brief overview of criminal justice in the United States. We look at the three main sectors, which are law enforcement, courts, and corrections, and providing a quick overview, because it's a lot of material to cover, those three main parts, to cover in a semester, but we look at each single part, starting with the history of law enforcement. So where did where are the origins of law enforcement? Moving on to the next one of courts. What is the function of the courts? And then ending with corrections, which is the last part to the criminal justice system of where those that are receiving punishment, where do they end up? Mm -hmm. And then the last class that I'm teaching currently is race, class, and justice. And in that class, we, we begin first by looking at identities, because identities are going to serve to inform criminal justice outcomes. So some of the, the class is race, cl race, class, right? Race, class, and justice. So those are two of the main identities that we look at. By looking at it, that race, social class, and all these other identities are a social construction. Mm -hmm. We look at other identities, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, gender, to really establish that as a foundation at the very beginning of the course through an intersectional framework, which was coined by, by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. And that really serves us to then move forward in the class. After establishing those as the main identities that we are going to look in, we look into the various forms of justice um, with law enforcement, with courts, and punishment. And so we, we take into consideration how the U.S. Supreme Court has played into defining race in the United States. We look into the different forms of justice, such as procedural justice that's played out in law enforcement and courts. And then we conclude by looking at the way that marginalized individuals as part of their identities are placed in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so what I hope in these classes that I teach is that whether you want to pursue a career in law enforcement, whether you want to become an attorney, whether you want to become a social worker, wherever you want to pursue, wherever you want to go with your career, I am there to support that. And in doing so, 
I am setting up the classroom to make people aware that these are the issues within the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And in one's participation in any of these sectors, these are the changes, these are the things that you can become conscious of Mm -hmm. in your role wherever you go. And I think one of the things that I value the most in teaching these classes is, is when students in their writing assignments can connect the dots in their daily lives, perhaps especially for race, class, and justice, where some have not really thought about their identities. And that's because they really haven't had to think about their identities mm-hmm. in, in a society that's, that's, that's really benefited them. But in, in taking the class and becoming aware of that, they begin to see how identity is an important factor in everyday things, in the shows that they watch, movies, and their interactions with other people. And that's something that's really valuable to me, that they're able to take the information learned from class and apply it to their everyday lives. That's so valuable, and I feel like that's so important across disciplines. If I'm like not even in a justice studies major or minor yet, and I want to take that class, like I could come back out and like apply that to something that I'm doing that's completely outside of the justice studies realm. And I think that's so important that you're teaching things that students can really apply to their own lives. How do you see yourself growing at JMU? You mentioned that you've been here for a year already. This is your second year. What um, are ideas maybe for different classes in the future? organizations that you're starting to get involved in? How do you want your students to get involved in the community as well? I think that that's also a really good point that you brought up. Like you want to reach, actually reach those communities instead of just doing the 3,000 foot view of how you can help them. Right. I see, I think there's a great potential here at JMU. And one of the aspects about JMU is it's global civic engagement mm-hmm. in that they're, they're their goal and their mission here at JMU is to grow scholars to live productive and meaningful lives. And so one of the ways in which I see myself, and, and a lot of the times I see this as, as growing as something being becoming organic. Mm. I don't want to force myself upon anyone or, and, or any organization. So a lot of the times it's through small communications, interactions of me attending different events and someone reaching out, hey, we would like to have you uh, participate in this or come to this or we need uh, someone to do X, Y, and Z. So I see those building up organically. And uh, the class that I would foresee myself teaching in Justice Studies in, in the near future would be a class on crimmigration. Mm. Because that's been really at the center of my research. And here, uh, at least within the Department of Justice Studies, we don't have a course on law enforcement. Um, and so I think bridging both my scholarship on marginalized communities, I can really bring the two together of immigration and law enforcement to build a course on crimmigration, which would focus on the criminalization of immigrants and the role that law enforcement, but also Custom Border Patrol, Immigration Custom Enforcement has a role with that. And so that's something that I would like to build in the future, especially as we think about one's careers and the way that they can themselves involve themselves. If that's a career that they choose to do, some of the changes or some of the things that they can see themselves implementing in their work and their career. And in terms of organizations that I like to join, I'm part of LAXI, and LAXI is a great organization because it offers courses 
to a diverse group of students that are interested in Latinx, Latin American, Caribbean studies. And it's also fulfilled by wonderful experts in their own disciplines to be able to cater to many students of, across many uh, majors. So I could see crim uh, the course on crimmigration being listed under LAXI to invite people from other majors outside of justice studies. Mm. In terms of student organizations, I would like to get myself involved with students that share a similar identity in ways that I can mentor students that are also first gen, who are also mm. of Latinx ancestry, who are also thinking about potential careers in criminal justice or criminology. And I know a lot of also psychology majors enter into taking criminal justice because they saw that they see the intersection that I also saw as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about Latinx Student Alliance as a potential group um, and also thinking about other student organizations that see that as a career. But one of the ways that I've garnered uh, students to come to office hours is just in the classes that I teach coming for advice about this is what I'm thinking about and pursuing mm. do you have about any opportunities for internship or any classes that you recommend and that's been really great to see uh, individuals reach out because that's not something that I did as an undergraduate mm. so to see that here has been really wonderful and rewarding and in terms of the community I I see myself supporting and being in the in the groups that I've already attended events to and just not taking over what they're already doing, but assisting them and meet them where their needs are. Mm. If that's if that's me being on a volunteer service, but again, building that report with the communities that the research impacts. That's awesome. One last fun question. Yeah. What's your favorite part about Harrisonburg and JMU so far? favorite part I really enjoy fall so mm. in like I said mentioned in in California we have summer all year long <laughs> and I think that was one of the adjustments was in terms of weather 60 degrees there I needed a sweater mm -hmm. and that's all I would need ever was just a sweater moving to the east coast apparently there's puffy jackets there's raincoats yeah there's windbreakers there's <laughs> all of these different things <laughs> So now being here and seeing such a beautiful campus, I, uh, my office is on the quad, so it's here in Darkest Johnson. So looking out, it's breathtaking, mm. especially right now, year-round. It's such a beautiful campus. It's, it's nice just to walk around the quad, being right here in the center. And having hiked in different trails in the Shenandoah Valley, mm. it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, so much foliage of different colors. So that's been my favorite part right now of enjoying these transitions that we make into seasons. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts about JMU too. The colors here are really beautiful with the trees and everything, so stunning. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center.